And it's my privilege this morning to introduce a new sermon series that we're calling A New Kind of Christian. I'm excited about this one because it's something I think about a lot, and so you might hear that kind of in my voice and my passion this morning as we look at some of these things. I look at the overall landscape of our ministry here at the river, and I realize that we spend a lot of time deconstructing religion and spirituality and ways of doing church. And that means that we really have this gift, this kind of self-reflective critique that we can give even for our own religious framework. I, I really take that as a gift. And in this spirit, we're kind of looking for habits and ways of being that are not congruent with what we see in the radical life and ministry of Christ. And that's really kind of the task of many of our life groups, like the one that's currently meeting on Wednesday nights, growing in faith, how to deconstruct your faith without losing it. And some of you have been a part of that. And these are the types of conversations that are taking place even on the second floor after worship on Sundays with our chat with a pastor. And so those that have been in those circles, you've had these conversations of asking the tough questions because we value questioning and even doubt in the spiritual life here at the river. And I was just thinking about that process of deconstruction. And for me, it's sort of our way of reverse engineering the Christian faith that we were handed in a prepackaged form at some point in our life. With this idea that if we can identify those life-giving and liberating ways of being, maybe then we can stitch together something that resembles the Christianity that Jesus intended. And so that's been our goal around here. To discover what a new kind of Christian needs to look like in our time, though, it takes not only deconstructive practices, but also we have to be doing a bit of reconstruction. And that's going to be the task over these next six weeks in this sermon series. For me, it's asking ourselves, what are the characteristics that make up a mature, transformative Christian in our world today? And it's an age-old question, yet somehow it feels particularly pressing right now. Over the last decade plus, thousands have continued to leave the church and even organize religion in general here in the U.S. I was reading just this week in the New York Times, they did a series kind of highlighting this mass exodus and, and how it's not being experienced just in Christian circles, but also across the religious landscape here in America and churches and in temples and mosques and friends' meeting houses and more. There's just been this mass exodus. And we talk about it from time to time, but this really coincides with the recent rise of the nuns category, those that claim no religious affiliation at all. These are the atheists and agnostics and sometimes nothing in particular. And some of you may identify that way this morning. And even in light of this present shift, this call, this series that we're doing here on a new kind of Christian, this is our way of not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And it inspires us to maybe discover a new way of being in an increasingly de-churched and post-Christian society. For many of us still hold fast to the kingdom of God as a framing story that can bring life, hope, and liberation. I know I do. 
I hope you do. But I do want to say um, something that I wish my, my pastor said growing up from the platform. And this is just me speaking, but I don't believe that one necessarily needs the church or organized religion to be spiritual or to live a meaningful life. But why I'm standing up here and in this space this morning and why I still feel so passionate about this is because of the transformative community that I find here at the river. And I'm not sure you can replicate that by joining a soccer club or being a part of a civic organization. But setting aside the special experience that we have here, there on a larger scale is something that has been broken. Author and speaker Brian McLaren, whose book has inspired the title of this new series, says that something isn't working in the way we're doing Christianity anymore. And I think he's right. And facing this reality, I feel like could be an opportunity to step into something new, even for us here. And so this morning, to get the conversation started, I wanted to share with you five characteristics that I feel define a new kind of Christian. And there's certainly more, even more that had just been going through my mind the last couple weeks, and maybe more that we'll discover in the weeks to come. But these are the five that I feel like are kind of the hot topics as I have conversations with those in the nuns category. And when Jesus wanted to teach the crowds the essentials of discipleship, he preached a sermon. You might remember this in Matthew 5. And he formed it in a series of Beatitudes, which are those statements that begin with blessed. You remember those, blessed are the poor in spirit and those who mourn. Blessed are the meek and the merciful. So I want to share these five characteristics in a similar fashion with what I'm calling the new Beatitudes. And I often think about if the Bible is written today, what are some of the things that would be included? And maybe it would be along the lines of what I'll share here. And here's the first one. Blessed are the spiritually plural. The spirituality of the Bible we know is an amalgamation of multiple strands of influences. This may be new news to you or maybe not. But it includes epics like the Epic of Gilgamesh and Egyptian texts and Canaanite poetry and Zoroastrianism, which is one of the oldest known religions in the world, and also pagan mythology and philosophies. All of that taken together and more has made up the spirituality of what we find in the Bible. It's very interesting. But what that tells me is that early Christians were spiritually plural people. They weren't an island unto themselves as if God just dropped Judaism out of the sky and it landed in their lap. They had to find ways of being in dialogue with their community, with texts and influences that were outside their religious circles. And so I feel that Christians would do well to reclaim that practice. I can remember a time, and I was thinking back this week, of a church that I served in Central Texas many, many years ago. And uh, they were against using candles in worship because they felt like it was too Catholic. Uh, but I'm a pretty reflective person, and so um, on one particular service, I remember pulling out a handful of candles and just kind of creating this ambiance in the worship space. Um, and I was reminded of that because afterward, uh, I was called the resident Catholic in the community. And their tone wasn't too, 
friendly either. In fact, they weren't so nice on other occasions. Often I would include readings or use music or other artistic expressions from sources outside of our own particular tradition, and sometimes I would be called a, a heretic. And needless to say, it wasn't a very warm place to be working, but, but there was this tangible resistance and even a fear to the unfamiliar, and it felt like they were missing out on so much of this beautiful plurality of spiritual expression. And so I, I fear along the way that Christians have come to be defined by what I see as a religious arrogance almost. According to the World Council of Churches document on religious plurality and Christian self-understanding, at stake is the credibility of religious traditions as forces that can bring justice, peace, and healing to a broken world. And the spiritually plural Christian can reclaim this credibility for the sake of the work. At the very least, I was thinking about that word disciple that we find in the New Testament, and really what we know about what it means to be a disciple is that they were learners. They were not preservationists. They were absorbing new information all the time, and we must reclaim that posture of learning and even make it our MO as we interact with an increasingly pluralistic society. So that's the first beatitude I want to suggest this morning. Number two, blessed are those who set up confession booths and not just churches. I think often about a story that I read some years ago in Donald Miller's book, Blue Like Jazz. He, if you've read that book, he recounts his time when he was at Reed College, a liberal arts college in uh, Portland, Oregon. And each year they held this festival called Ren Fair, where they shut down the entire campus so students can throw a giant party you know, getting drunk and high and running around naked, just the typical college experience, as one does. And before one of these parties, Don and another of the Christian students were discussing how they would reveal their spiritual identity to their friends, and they thought that this was the event to do it. And yet they were very aware that these students were hostile towards Christians already. And they came up with this idea of setting up a confession booth right in the middle of campus with a sign that read, Confess Your Sins. And they mentioned it as a joke, and that's just how the rest of their Christian friends took it. They may very well burn it down, one of the friends said. But the more they thought about it, they came pretty serious about this idea with one caveat. It says in the book, we are not actually going to accept confessions. We're going to confess to them. We're going to confess that as followers of Jesus, we have not been very loving. We have been bitter, and for that, we are sorry. We will apologize for the crusades. We will apologize for those televangelists who steal people's money. We will apologize for neglecting the poor and the lonely, and we will ask them to forgive us. And we will tell them that in our selfishness, we have misrepresented Jesus on our campus. Pretty powerful stuff, and that image has stuck in my mind all these years. And for a religion that teaches the confession of sins, we rarely find that it confesses its own. And I find that troubling, especially since it has historically been a religion of conquest. 
And we as thinking people cannot miss how modern Christianity has been complicit in the colonization of Western Europe. And so we are right, along with others, to question what streams of colonization still infect Christian efforts today. And I was thinking that maybe in, in those in those in the nuns category still sense these reverberations of colonization and so they want nothing to do with Christianity. So that maybe while we are building, const- building and constructing church buildings, we should also be building memorials. A new kind of Christian will spend more energy in confession booths than in conquest by any other name. And I find that image of the confession booth helpful for me in keeping this posture of humility and service. One of the things I liked about Donald Miller's story is that it takes place in the middle of a college campus, not at a church building. We're not welcoming people into the building to confess. For as much as I love what goes on inside the walls of this church, a new kind of Christian will embrace this move where the epicenter of Christian activity moves from in these spaces to out in the quote-unquote secular realm. But not to evangelize, not to convert, but to serve and love. And perhaps there will be a byproduct of those coming back to the church because of that. And here's a third one. Maybe in the new Beatitudes we would also find Blessed are those who keep no walls of hostility. One of the troubling things that has plagued me about our Christian heritage is its need to always have adversaries and enemies. And we can understand that in a first century world that there were those that were literally killing Christians because of their identity as part of this radical movement. So separation and even revolt were part of a life and death matter. And we also understand that still in parts of our world today, many don't enjoy the religious freedoms that we know here in our country, and they live in fear. But the mounting fears against a growing list of enemies has been piling up and making those like myself and others question whether our struggle is only against the spiritual principalities. Here's how our enemy list looks these days. Science. Wokeness, queerness, the divorcee, climate change, and earth care, Jews, critical race theory, Disney, alcohol, secular music, other religions. And the list goes on and on. I can continue to talk about that. And you've heard it said many times before that Christianity in our time has come to be defined more by who or what we are against than who or what we are for, and it should not be this way. I can sometimes sympathize, if I'm honest. Having a common enemy feels good, and it brings people together. I find a wonderful community around my disdain for the Dallas Cowboys. It's a beautiful thing. It really is. Or maybe about, you know, what's the best barbecue? You know, Memphis, North Carolina, East or West. Kansas City. It's always going to be Texas barbecue. And the whole world of sports really is set up to feed into this competition of tribe against tribe and and person against person, but enemy-making and tribal mentality cannot be the way of the new kind of Christian. 
In Ephesians 2.14, it says, Christ is the embodiment of our peace, sent once and for all to take down the great barrier of hatred and hostility that has divided us so that we can be one. Taken down the great barrier of hostility. And it makes me think of puzzles. Have you ever tried putting together a 500-piece puzzle with the wrong box lid? No? Without the right image, I find that it can be almost impossible to get those little pieces where they need to go. And I wonder if we've been handed the wrong image of what a Christian looks like. And we've been trying to piece together pieces that sound a lot like Jesus but don't quite fit while leaving other essential pieces out altogether because of our box lid. And when we work from a more Christ-like image, the right image of what it is to be Christian, then the pieces begin to make more sense and the colors, they go together perfectly and the shapes, they fit just the way they were intended to fit. And so I recall this scripture that Christ is our peace, our image, and a new kind of Christian uses this image to piece together life and faith. So maybe that's a third beatitude that might be included if the Bible were continuing to be written today. And I want to just pause for a minute and just kind of get a temperature check of where you are. Maybe you just ask yourself that question of how you fit into this. Where are you? Are you checking the boxes? Do you have a long way to go? Do you want to edit some of this? You know, just kind of a temperature check in the room. I have to do that myself. Here's another one. Blessed are the less judgy. Yep, that's exactly how I want to phrase it. And really in regard to sin is what I want to talk about here. The view of sin that we've been handed by our modern Christian heritage was, was well-meaning, I think, with good intentions, but it's become dangerous in our time. And I want to ask you, maybe even by show of hands here, in the Gospel of John, in the account of the woman caught in adultery who was about to get stoned, who exhibited the greater sin? The woman who committed the adultery or the religious, the Pharisees, who were about to stone her? What do you think? The woman? The greater sin? The Pharisees? Okay, that was just a Bible check. So you passed. Good job. Yeah, and by Jesus' actions, it was the judgmental attitudes of the religious that was condemned here even more. And if you need a reminder, here's how the scene ends. It says, dear woman, where is everyone? Are we alone? Of course they were alone. They all had left by that point. Did no one step forward to condemn you? The woman says, Lord, no one has condemned me. And Jesus answers, well, I don't condemn you either. All I ask is that you go and from now on to avoid the sins that plague you. And you see, Jesus wasn't condoning this adultery in a sort of relativistic way. Whatever you feel is right for you, go do it. No problem. But he recognized a complexity when it comes to sin that humanized people. And he tells her to go on and avoid these sins that keep bringing you hell on earth experiences that set you before these men who just want to stone you. But even as he can missions her to go and and to not sin in these ways he prioritizes her dignity and he liberates her with these words i do not condemn you either this notion of sin most popular in churches today has more to do with actions and people and i think we've gotten that backward and in that view the bible is held up as some 
sort of standard, yet I find myself asking, what do we do with these complexities? You know, for one, John the Baptist is called and he is charged to avoid alcohol, and yet this is the same God that empowers Jesus to turn water into wine at a wedding. And we have these scriptures that promote God as the ideal righteous judge, yet in the story of the prodigal son, this father, who is a picture of God, completely disregards the son's rebellious and scandalous living and fully accepts him as he is and just throws a party for him. What kind of judge does that? And I've come to appreciate how the Bible leaves us in this ambiguity and complexity. It doesn't apologize for it. And that spirit just flies in the face of our binary systems of right and wrong. And it disarms us and it calls us to drop the stones that we so want to just throw at other people so often. But Jesus over and over again models for us how to prioritize and even humanize people. And I think that's going to be the way of a new Christian. Lastly, blessed are those who set their minds on things of earth. I find that maybe one of the biggest obstacles or arguments against Christianity in our day is this overemphasis on getting to heaven to the detriment of caring for the earth. And there are scripture passages like Colossians 3.2 that contribute to this mindset. It says, set your minds on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. And you can see that when someone reads that at face value, it leads to this sort of dismissal of earth care and justice. And we treat earth like a one-night stand in a cheap Motel 6 because we believe that our true home is somewhere else. And we're just kind of passing through. Yet a new kind of Christian understands that in this paradoxical way, setting your heart and mind on things of heaven necessarily leads one to be mindful of creation because creation is the love project of God, right? That's how it was set up. And you can hear it in Jesus' prayer. We just sang it a minute ago. And he pleads that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. And that sounds nothing like Jesus trying to just get everybody to heaven and forsake earth. So as citizens here, we have this interactive role to play in God's natural ecosystem to be participants in its healing and its flourishing. So I find that when I think of this as a, a way to resituate myself in God's original framing story of creation. It's ironic, I think, that Christians became so obsessed over how the world was created, but then we hardly do that over the way that it needs ongoing care and maintenance. And a new kind of Christian will embrace this call. Yeah, so those are the five new Beatitudes that I came up with. And I know there are certainly, certainly many others. I want to hear from you as well um, as we get this conversation going over these next six weeks. Um, but maybe just a way to close is for you to just consider kind of where you are with all of this. What goes to your mind is... Are there more to add to this list, ways to edit this list? Maybe you're one of those that identify in the nuns category and you struggle with the Christianity that you were handed as a younger person. 
and you can't reconcile some of these things. Or maybe you've been disenchanted by Christianity because of the way you've seen it lived out in other people. And I want to say that I empathize with that. In most days, if not many days, I'm there as well. But I'm also convinced that the framing story of God's liberating love and justice can still change people and whole communities even. And so the question becomes, can we become new in these changing times? And by the way, spoiler alert, this challenge to become new and to become a new Christian, a new kind of Christian, will always be there. It's not a journey that we arrive at, but I find that there is reward in doing the work over and over again. So may that be so of us here today. I want to close in prayer if you'll join me. Our God, our Mother, our Father, remove in us all that is foreign to your ways of love and peacemaking and justice and make us new. Fit us with new eyes for locating you in unexpected places and in traditions yet unfamiliar to us. And where there is fear which leads to hostility and enemy-making, be our peace. Be the image by which we piece together life and faith. And we'll come now to your communion table. And we come in a spirit of peace and unity. Remind this community once again what self-giving love for others looks like. And in Christ's name we pray, amen.